Hi, my name's Sam Finlay, and you're listening to the ACES Podcast. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Bruce Ashford, who specializes in head and neck surgery, as well as being a reconstructive microsurgeon and cancer researcher. Dr. Ashford will also be the presenter at this year's Bill Wheeler Community Symposium. Throughout the podcast, we share a conversation about his career, which began in dentistry, moving to medicine, his work today and collaborations with ACES and the University of Wollongong, and much more. All right, let's get to our chat. So I'm chatting to Dr. Bruce Ashford on the ACES podcast today, head and neck surgeon, as well as um, involved in reconstructive microsurgery and a cancer researcher. You're also a collaborator of us here, and you'll be the presenter of this year's Bill Wheeler Community Symposium. Bruce, thanks for joining me. No worries. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure to have you. You know, First of all, let's go back to um, how it all began for you a little bit, I guess. Uh, I was reading and doing a little bit of research for this, and I believe before uh, medicine, you actually uh, studied dental science. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, although my mates who are dentists would probably, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, not claim that to be true after having seen some of my dental work but um yeah no I did I actually uh never thought I would make it into dental school because um uh, as my father said to me coming up to my final exams for high school he said I hope you get what you deserve out of these exams and that's absolutely nothing uh which was very encouraging of him but this was after him not letting me leave school at year 10 and go to the Dolby Ag College which is what my brother had done so uh, I actually never thought I would get into dentistry, uh, let alone anything else. So um, I, I managed to uh, fake my way into dental school and I've been faking it ever since. <laughs> so why then the shift from, well, actually, first of all, why did you want to go into our dental school? I went in year 12, went travelled down from country Queensland down to the University of Queensland and to uh uh, vacation school for nerds, really. And there was a whole lot of the faculties came and spoke to all the nerds that had accumulated in the lecture theatres. And there was a talk on something to do with oral surgery. And I thought, wow, I'd never thought of being a dentist. Maybe I could be a dentist. And so I sort of just, uh, there was no lifelong passion. I just thought maybe that sounded cool. And in fact, actually, it's been it's been a really useful set of skills to have. And uh, it sort of made doing medicine easier, and and uh, I would after I finished dental school, I um I was in the military, so I was sponsored um, during my time through um, my undergraduate dental program, and was spent some time in the air force, and so that's uh, then given me a sort of another um, branch to sort of uh, maintain as I've gone into medicine and then surgery. So. Actually, it, it was a real um, avenue to a whole lot of fantastic experiences, which you wouldn't normally think. You would think dentistry is pretty sterile, but actually it's been a great thing to have done. So why the shift from um, dentistry to uh, medicine? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, I uh, usually, when people ask me that, say I didn't know what to do with all the spare time and money. <laughs> but uh, truthfully, truthfully, I think uh, I think my ego just demanded to try something new. So uh, I think I felt that I was not sure that I wanted to um, spend my whole life doing drill and fill type of dentistry, which is what I would have done. Um, And so I sort of wondered whether there was something more I could do. 
and uh, and apply my my you know sort of skills in other areas. So I, I imagined as soon as I since sort of not long after I got to dental school, I imagined doing medicine, but. In second year, like everybody in second year of their undergraduate degree, I drank too much, <laughs> almost no study. And as a result, my GPA was the worst for that six months in the first half of second year. So I failed to get to the level where I could have transferred across to medicine. So uh, as it turns out, that's okay. Uh, one, one door shuts, another one might open. So um, anyway, I, I, I eventually decided that actually what I wanted to be was a maxillofacial surgeon, given that I'd gone through dentistry. And, and so I thought, you know, ultimately I would leave general practice dentistry and go and do um, oral surgery training. And, and some of that involved doing medicine. Um, it was in an era where oral surgery training was going from just a dental specialty to a combined dental and medical specialty. So um, that's how I fell into doing medicine. Uh, and I went into third year of medicine at, um, at the University of Queensland as part of the oral and maxillofacial training program. So, um, yeah, that's how I got there. So did you study both degrees at the University of Queensland? Yeah. So I, growing up in Queensland, I went to uh, UQ in, at St. Lucia in Brisbane uh, to do dentistry. And thereafter, I... I was sort of accepted onto the maxillofacial training program as a as a dentist and would be medical student in Brisbane. So part of that was then going a sort of after a first year of a master's degree in oral surgery, sort of slotting into third year medicine. Um, so yeah, I did both my undergraduate degrees at, at UQ. Right, and then the move uh, down to Wollongong obviously eventuated. How did that come about? Uh, again, just like everything, just at accident and uh, the lowest common denominator. I'd, I'd um, finished medical school and had said to the oral surgery guys, listen, I don't want to, I don't want to spend my whole life being told what I can and can't do by ENT <laughs> surgeons and plastic surgeons, which was really how that landscape was in 1999. Uh, I'd much rather push them around. Thanks very much. So <laughs> I, um, I went to Darwin after my internship and did a couple of years up there of general surgery training as an unaccredited registrar. So that was good. My wife was in the military at that stage as well. And we had a few kids up there. And anyway, we spent two years in Darwin and then I got accepted onto general surgery training, which again was a big surprise. I didn't think I would get on, but I got accepted onto training. And the only person who I knew did head and neck surgery was Chris O'Brien. And Chris O'Brien was this sort of trailblazing general surgeon who became a head and neck surgeon and set up Chris O'Brien Lifehouse is really sort of the uh, one of the uh, big figures in head and neck surgery, both in Australia and internationally. And he was working at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and um, I thought, oh, maybe I would like to do work with him. So I decided to do surgical training in Sydney, never having lived in Sydney ever, and eventually went through surgical training. And during, um, you know, the only people I knew were living in Stanwell Tops at the time and <laughs> we didn't have any other friends. So we just moved down to here because I thought I'll be working at St George and Liverpool, so that's close enough. So I sort of by accident ended up at Stanwell Tops and then have been living there since uh, 2003. <laughs> Stanwell Tops, Stanwell Park, and now further south. <laughs> so you mentioned the, the military there. Did that have you moving around a lot as well? Yeah. Yeah, so in the military generally, particularly in that era where there was sort of there was this era between um, sort of 
the Rwanda Somalia period and um, Iraq War, the Second Iraq War, and then Afghanistan, where there was not a lot of operational um, activity, and so generally speaking, people moved around in Australian bases every two years. So we had some time in Newcastle, then we went to Canberra, and ultimately um, via Darwin, um, sort of, and Brisbane back back down to Sydney. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty standard life for kids and for people involved in a military families to move every couple of years. So you get to see a lot, but you never really feel like you belong anywhere. Mm. So I believe you've also got a doctor of philosophy. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, apparently. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you, um, yeah, I did a PhD here at Wollongong um, in uh, chemistry and molecular biosciences with Marie Ranson who is the, as I said in a talk a couple of weeks ago, the queen of metastasis. So <laughs> she is uh, a, a biologist, a biochemist, and um, uh, she and I put together a program to understand um, the process by which, the process um, by which bad skin cancers metastasize. So we see a lot of patients with skin cancer that is usually squamous cell carcinoma because that's really common. It tends to be the most likely skin cancer to metastasize. So it spreads to regional lymph nodes sort of in the neck uh, because the most common place where people get skin cancer is actually on their face. So this is the Australian disease. You know, it's the disease of Anglo-Celtic background coming into a, an environment where we were never meant to be. Uh, so that given that the majority of the Australian population is still of that sort of, you know, racial background, <clears throat> certainly cutaneous SCC is a really common problem we see in an area like this. So high UV exposure, fair skin, and people getting, people living to a very good age, so that long enough for them to develop things like skin cancers and metastatic skin cancers. So we sort of felt that it was reasonable to do some work looking at the molecular basis of metastasis in, in high-risk skin cancers. So that was the background of my PhD and that sort of finished in 2019. So I sort of did that at the same time as, as working. So that was an interesting experience. Right. And now focusing on your current work today, I mean, you wear a number of hats. I'm wondering if you can sort of uh, explain to, to the listeners what you're um, currently up to. Yeah, so my main job is as a as a surgeon. So I'm I'm a staff specialist staff specialist general surgeon at Wollongong Hospital, um, which means I do general surgery on call, or I should say my fellow does my general surgery. <laughs> Notionally, it's me. Um, so uh, that is a part of it. So when I'm on call, we do abdominal surgery largely, um, which is standard general surgery, which is interesting and trauma and other things. Uh, but my my sort of private practice or my practice, if you like, my clinical practice is in, um, in head and neck surgery. So largely looking at thyroid and salivary gland and neck cancers and oral cavity and just all anything above your clavicle that isn't your brain is our area of interest. So um, a lot of that is cancer work. So that's why we're heavily invested in, in regional cancer services and in trying to train up the next generation of surgeons. So it's an important thing for us. So in addition to that, um, we are involved in a bit of research that stems from that, not only as skin cancer work, but a lot of uh, research in reconstructive 
uh, surgery and in, you know, trying to extend those boundaries, both in microsurgery and also using uh, novel materials and techniques to reconstruct uh, particularly the facial skeleton and also specialised structures in the head and neck. Um, and then I've got a couple of other jobs relating to research, one at the university within, the, within graduate medicine, where I um, ha have a role in teaching and research there. And, uh, and I'm the clinical director at the, at the Research Institute at Emory. And um, I sort of lead, lead research for the local health district here. And then I've got a sort of a, mainly a grandstanding role in running the COVID uh, task group, um, which really just involves me appearing on YouTube videos and on Facebook, uh, as well as pretending I know a lot about stuff <laughs> I really don't know anything about. So, uh, <laughs> And that's really just an organisational role. Um, so, th yeah, that's my that's uh, that's what I do for work. Right, and I guess that last point sort of goes into my next question a little bit, and that's about uh, last year you uh, worked closely with a number of researchers here, including Professor Gordon Wallace, um, to produce and deliver face shields to help health workers uh, during the the crisis. Um, first of all, I'm wondering how that came about. Yeah, I mean, uh, the best people to work with are the people that come up with the great ideas. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't matter whether that's on your cricket team or whether it's uh, in healthcare or research. So Gordon, of course, is always um, months and years ahead of any thinking about a subject that everyone else eventually ends up thinking about. So, of course, he calls me and says, hey, uh, Bruce, I th do you guys maybe need how's your PPE? Are you guys well enough stocked with things? And of course, this was the start of COVID in March of last year. And we were just looking down the barrel of this. In fact, right exactly like we are now, looking at this barrel, down the barrel of this unknown quantity. And um, so Gordon sort of asked us what we could use. And we said, you know what, we, we know that the highest risk circumstances are where there's splashing of bodily fluids and aerosols and things being coughed and that we think this is a, an airborne disease, you know, would there be any capacity to help us out with, with some of our PPE? And, um, of course, uh, you know, um, Gordon used all of the resources um, within his department and with Tricep and, you know, worked on constructing some face shields for us in record time and, um, you know, just really uh, um, provided, I, I forget how many thousand of those uh, to us, just, uh, and that was, it was actually as, as symbolic as it was practical. So it was of great practical use to us. And it meant that staff could be wearing these around the workplace in the hospital across the local health district but in addition to that, what it meant was that, you know, our, our leading researchers within the university and the community had their eye on the needs of the health district. And when, when you're looking after the, the workforce within the hospital, you're really looking after the community because that is, that's always the key in COVID is will the health assets and resources be overwhelmed? Um, and that really is the is the uh, is the currency in COVID. It's not really how many people are affected, except to say that a percentage of those infected will end up in hospital. It's does the amount of disease within the community equate to the hospital resources being overwhelmed, 
and, and the hospital being unable to function in the way we want it to. So that idea of looking after the workforce was really symbolic and I think gave everybody um, a really good feeling about the support that we had within health. So it was a, a really great thing. Yeah, great. And has any uh, further collaborations maybe with um, some of the researchers here with Professor Gordon Wallace um, you know, come about from uh, that first uh, exchange? Yeah, so we had worked on a couple of other projects during that period of, of specialised bits of kit that we needed. One was this little connector that was uh, going to sort of be used between the ventilators and a particular other bit of equipment in a respiratory circuit. Um, so we had a whole bunch of those made up and they really, we, we literally took a piece of plastic tubing equipment with some really weird attachments to Gordon and said, what do you think? And he said, as he always does, yeah, yeah I think we can do that. Um, so uh, we, we, we've, um, we, we used that and there, was, there have been another number of other projects. And in fact, we've just started work on a new project with Gordon, not in the COVID space, but in the uh, looking at biomarkers of, um, of risk in, in suicide, actually. Right. So we're working with uh, Gordon and some of his collaborators from Belfast on um, on collecting electrolytes out of sweat and, and uh, with uh, Michelle Townsend, who's one of the uh, heavy hitting psychology types at UOW. Uh, so, I mean, uh, the more you work together, the more usually the more you want to work together, <laughs> particularly in a team that um, is supportive and is innovative and has got seemingly endless energy. So that's that's the great thing about that relationship. Oh, great stuff. Uh, now, uh, focusing on the Bill Wheeler uh, Award that I mentioned at the start of the, the podcast, um, which is all about community and um, supporting uh, research, um, you're going to be presenting um, at the symposium. I'm wondering what we can expect from uh, your talk. Yeah, so I think in the talk that I give in about a month's time, maybe a little bit longer, uh, I'm going to really just explore some of the challenges that we have in health and interacting with the community because um, Unfortunately, too often the only time that the community gets to interact with health is in is in the midst of something bad. So I'm going to really start to explore some of those issues around around a meaningful engagement between the community and the health sector and research sector generally, and use a couple of examples of how we've got it right and how we've not done things so well. Um, because I think that, that uh, in a town like Wollongong, where we've got a, where we've got one major teaching hospital, we've got many other smaller hospitals which are critical to the support of the big hospital, and we've got one university and we've got one football team. I think we still have a football team. We did have last weekend. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we ought to be. We ought to have more of uh, an identity around the interaction between those entities and I think that that's a challenge for us and I think we can do better in that respect and I think there's goodwill between all groups but uh, you know having the new vice chancellor here has been a real opportunity for us to think about what are the possibilities what are the possibilities in the relationships we have between health and uh, academia and research and innovation so uh, and I think that I think that's probably what um Bill Wheeler's interest was in um, really magnifying the possibilities of interaction and innovation for the benefit of the community. So that's what I want to talk about. And 
really it's as much about getting it clear in my mind as telling anybody anything particularly wise. I'm looking forward to it. That should be a, a great symposium. Uh, one thing I also ask um, the guests that I get on here is if they've got some sort of routine, maybe a morning routine or something you do every single day that sort of helps you um, approach your work. <laughs> um, well, what I do every day is I do exactly the same thing. And as I go downstairs and talk to my dog, <laughs> uh, I have a Labrador and uh, there's a sort of a certain routine we have every morning where I talk to her and we, I ask her how her sleep was. <laughs> then, of course, she knows that I'm about to put the kettle on. Then I make a cup of coffee and she gets a bit of milk. And then we <laughs> sit out on the front veranda and watch the sunrise. So, uh, I mean, uh, that seems to be how the day goes, starts for me. And it's uh, actually sort of almost meditative <laughs> contrived now. Uh, it's very Pavlovian, you might say, because the dog knows exactly what's going to happen. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, I'm not a too sophisticated person. Unfortunately, at the moment, all of that's being a bit upset by the Tour de France being on. <laughs> I'm staying up late. And then the first thing I want to do in the morning is find out how the stage finished. But um, no, my morning routine and and high-end microsurgical um, brain has to start the day interacting with uh, <laughs> Bella, the Labrador. <laughs> I uh, love it. Love it. Uh, and, and just to uh, finish up the podcast, I'm wondering if you could maybe offer some advice to uh, anyone out there maybe thinking about a similar sort of uh, career path. Yeah, I think it's a real privilege to be able to be involved in people's lives at, um, at uh, uh, good and bad times and to be able to offer people hope. Uh, so there's no doubt that being a, being a medical doctor is a real privilege and I enjoy every day of doing that. Well, I'm at the moment I'm mentoring some medical students who want to become surgeons and they're very interested in how, how do I get onto surgery and how do I get onto this and how do I impress the right people? And, and I always say to them, listen, you start off by being a big by being a good doctor. So if you're going to be an orthopedic surgeon, you've got to be better, you've got to know more about internal medicine than the physicians do. And if you're going to be a general surgeon uh, who's doing head and neck surgery, you've got to be better at doing bowel resections than everybody else. So start off with this base layer of just being a really good clinician. And I would say that not only is it a great career to go into medicine generally, and, and for that matter, dentistry, um, but you start off just, um, just knowing, how to, um, knowing how to do your basic job really well, and then everything else falls into place. And don't don't if you're thinking now that you don't have the smarts to get into medicine or get into architecture or get into whatever it is you want to do i mean you just got to keep going and um, if i can do it then that's obvious evidence that anyone could do it so that's what i would say great advice well look, that brings us to the end of the podcast thanks so much for joining me bruce it's been a pleasure to chat and looking forward to hearing you at the uh, Bill Wheeler uh, Community Symposium next month on Thursday, the 17th of August. Good on you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening. For more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for all the latest ASUS news, head over to our website, electromaterials.edu.au. Until next time, goodbye.